Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello, and welcome to the RISE podcast. I'm Jason Silberstein, a research fellow with RISE, and today I'm speaking to Manos Antoninis. Manos is director of UNESCO's Global Education Monitoring Report, the GEM Report. And in this episode, we talk about the first report in the Spotlight series, a new initiative by the GEM Report and its partners to shine a spotlight on primary completion and the state of foundational learning in Africa. We discuss the report's clear and compelling recommendations for how to improve learning. Uh, We get into politics, measuring learning, and supporting teachers. And I especially enjoyed this conversation because it challenged some of my preconceived notions. So for example, Mano shares why he feels the term, quote, the learning crisis, end quote, is not an entirely accurate representation of the problem that many African countries are facing. Enjoy, and I hope you also have your mind changed during this rich conversation. We're really lucky to have Manos from the GEM Report with us today. Manos, thanks so much for being here, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Great. So um, we are talking today, of course, about the Spotlight series. So I thought I'd just start off with a... um, Big picture question about what is the Spotlight Report series? Um, can you tell us about its goals and how you're going about achieving those goals? So the Spotlight, first of all, is a partnership, a partnership between the Global Education Monitoring Report, the Association for the Development of Education in Africa, and the African Union. And of course, each of the three partners comes to this with their own uh, specific angles but all joined in the ambition to ensure that primary education receives a higher level of attention uh, at the highest political uh, circles, something that has not been, uh, let's say, happening quite that much in recent years. Uh, From the GEM Reports perspective, it is part of our regional report series. Since 2019, we have launched a regional edition of the Global Report, where we take the theme of the global report and we go in depth in one of the world's regions and we are essentially covering all regions by next year. But in the case of Africa, we felt that we really needed to focus on uh, universal basic education completion and foundational learning uh, because this is, of course, uh, an issue that is of particular relevance for Africa and essentially for the world. Um, it is essentially a three-part series. We are planning to have three editions of a continental report and each cycle is uh, focusing on uh, six countries, five or six countries, one per uh, region, uh, African region, and that's complemented with uh, case studies and background papers, again, from different parts of Africa. And it is uh, the first time we work uh, at the country level as, uh, as a global report, and that's quite an important innovation but we felt it was really necessary. And the, the reason is not that we, as a report, have uh, a country expertise by any means. We work with local partners to enable that to happen. But we have a comparative advantage in elevating the debates at the country level to the continental and global level. And that's ultimately uh, what we are trying to achieve. Yeah, terrific. It's uh, 
it's uh, both a very focused uh, effort, I think, in 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 the shot uh, spotlight that you know it's it's shining on these issues of universal uh, com primary completion and low foundational learning. But it's also so ambitious, uh, you know, both in the in the depth and and the um, geographic, uh, you know, deep dives into these different country experiences. Um, Great. So I, I wanted to talk um, next a bit about the these major educational challenges that the spotlight is uh, surfacing. Um, and, you know, one of these, of course, is the low uh, levels of foundational learning across the continent. Um, and Manos, I, I wanted to ask you um, about a specific, uh, the phrase learning crisis. I know um, you and, and the report are not necessarily uh, a fan of this phrase, the learning crisis, or there's there's something that that implies that is not quite right. So can you tell us a bit about um, how you think about the phrase, the learning crisis, and whether that adequately captures, you know, the, the picture of low foundational learning in um, sub-Saharan Africa? I mean, first of all, let's say that uh, the Durham report, uh, when it was still the Education for All Global Monitoring Report back in 2012, uh, used the uh, learning crisis as a term. But one could say that it was a crisis when the extent of the challenges that uh, countries faced, um, especially the poorest countries, uh, in ensuring that all children achieve a minimum level of proficiency. Uh, at the time, you know, uh, around 2010, it was the first time that we could really put together um, information on learning achievement from different parts of the world and start getting a global picture, uh, a process which is, of course, continuing to this moment. But I think it's also important to not forget what crisis means, what is the definition of a crisis. And a crisis tends to be a, a negative trend. We are at a certain level and then uh, things suddenly uh, deteriorate and then we have a crisis, a financial crisis is the deceleration of the economic growth rate or uh, even um, you know, moving to, into recession. Uh, I don't think it's fair to say that we have enough information uh, that a deterioration has been happening in the world. The, in fact, funnily enough, the only part of the world where we know for sure that learning levels are declining is the global north. Uh, rich countries have been observed over the last 20 years to actually uh, lose ground. Um, and that's, of course, a complicated set of factors primarily related to immigration and uh, increasingly more disadvantaged populations uh, in societies who, of course, struggle to integrate uh, and different countries are trying different uh, routes. Um, but what we tried to do and uh, let's also not forget that the real crisis, just to continue that logic, the real crisis that we have faced is COVID. Uh, and it's a bit ironic that after crying wolf for a number of years about the learning crisis, suddenly a real crisis came and uh, people were struggling to find the term to describe it. Um, what we have tried to do, knowing that we have very little evidence, and I think we're not the only ones who did it, I think also the Center for Global Development did a similar uh, study, we have only one source, um, really, uh, of uh, information on levels of uh, proficiency at the most rudimentary level. These are the questions on literacy that the demographic and health surveys and the multiple indicator cluster surveys have been using to uh, measure literacy directly. There's a very simple sentence that uh, 
adults aged 15 to 49 tend to be asked. Um, interestingly enough, this used to be asked only of uh, people who had uh, only done up to primary education. So it was assumed automatically that those who had attended uh, secondary education were literate, but unfortunately, the evidence was that sometimes they were not even uh, literate after seven years of education. And we looked retrospectively at a very particular group. What was the literacy rate of those who had, uh, left school after five of, or six years of education? Now, let's not forget, this is not the same group over time. Over a period of 40 years, those who were leaving school after primary um, were probably what we might call middle class, or uh, it was normal to finish uh, um, uh, school and leave uh, 40 years ago in parts of Africa. Those who leave school with five or six years now are among the poorest, so clearly it's a self-selected group. But we looked at all countries in Africa and we found three categories. We found those countries which had um, high, in inverted commas, because not very high, basically around 60 or 70 percent of those who had done five or six years over the last 40 years um, were literate. And these tended to be monolingual societies. Uh, you find there are countries like Rwanda, Madagascar, uh, Lesotho. Um, no country had improved uh, literacy rates of this group. It was stable over a period of 40 years. Then you have a second group, which are countries that also had stability over 40 years, but at extremely low levels. Uh, we're talking about just 10 or 20%. So uh, these people, and we're looking at um, um, adolescents of 15 to 19 years, a very specific age group. After six years of school, only one in 10 or two in 10 could um, read a sentence of 10 words. But again, stable. This was primarily countries in Anglophone Western Africa. And then there's a third group, which is about a third of countries, where these uh, literacy rates for this particular group have been declining indeed over time. But there the question is, does this decline represent a learning crisis over 40 years? And we're talking about decline, let's say, from 60% to 40%. Or does this only represent the fact that this group has been progressively a more disadvantaged group? Uh, children whose parents had never been to school before, uh, where they might have been uh, in the previous uh, generation, or other changing socioeconomic conditions. So this is the only evidence we have over time. Um, and I think the only other evidence we have from the very patchy data is that learning levels are extremely low, but they're, if anything, stable, if not slightly increasing uh, over the years. So just a bit of caution how we use the term crisis. The levels are extremely low, that we should not forget, but the crisis is about the decline. Absolutely. No, that's that's great. I think that provides a lot of really useful nuance and, uh, uh, you know, problem description uh, that shows you, you know, this this problem has been around for a long time. Things haven't been getting better in most places, but, you know, the the problems in different countries are very different, right? The, the country experiences over time. Um, and the problem in those countries is very different. That, that's that's great. So um, I wanted to talk next um, about the spotlights recommendations for you know what we what we do about some of these challenges we've been discussing. Um, so let me just briefly recap the spotlights kind of major top line conclusions. Um, and I'm not going to do them justice, but just to get them on the table quickly, there are three student level um, recommendations, top line recommendations, and then three kind of systems level 
top line recommendations. So the student level recommendations are one, give all children a textbook, two, teach all children in their home language, and three, uh, provide all children with a school meal. So those are the student level recommendations. And then three accompanying system level recommendations, um, make a clear plan to improve learning. Uh, five, develop teacher capacity, you know, and make sure teachers use classroom time effectively. Uh, and then six, uh, prepare instructional leaders. So this is really talking about the support uh, that's offered to teachers and schools. Um, so there's a lot there. I think maybe we can uh, unpack some of those recommendations in, in a few different questions. And uh, first, I wanted to just zoom in on the systems level recommendation that is about making a clear plan to improve learning. Um, and you know, within that top line recommendation, the, the Spotlight Report um, has a lot of, of detailed and specific actions that are great, you know, defining learning standards, measuring uh, progress against standards, making sure the standards match other parts of the system, like the curriculum, like uh, teacher preparation and textbook design. So um, there's lots and lots of depth in the report. Um, and this also has lots and lots in common, by the way, I think with RISE's recent campaign and uh, paper on uh, five actions to improve learning progress. Um, but a big, I guess, uh, challenge in from RISE's research is that even prior to getting uh, a country to make this clear plan around improving learning, there is this prior uh, issue of, you know, politics in a country needing to prioritize and care about learning, right? So I guess my, my question here is, um, are, have you faced challenges in increasing political support for foundational uh, literacy and numeracy and in getting governments to see foundational um, learning as a key part of their vision for national development? Um, and, and how has the spotlight kind of grappled with those more political challenges? This is, of course, the heart of the matter when it comes to, to this uh, type of work. Uh, just a reminder that in our um, country reports, we are collaborating directly with governments, which, uh, as I mentioned, is the first time we're doing that. And, and that, of course, entails some opportunities and some constraints. Uh, we're not going to talk politics with the governments, inevitably. But the main, uh, I think, constraint we see in elevating uh, the political uh, priority that is given to primary education is the terms of the debates. Uh, I mean, there are many ways, of course, of influencing the politics, but at least what comes uh, to uh, the areas that we could potentially help influence. We would like this debate to be framed uh, in positive terms, um, because often there's a tendency to focus on the problems and the challenges and the weaknesses and uh, how countries are lagging behind. We think countries should see it as a positive challenge, because it is a positive challenge, and bring to the table their experience of what they have feel they're doing well and they're progressing and share that at the continental level. So that's uh, really an essential uh, way of changing the nature of the dialogue. From our side, we see the spotlight as helping uh, implement uh, a broader framework that we have been introducing with the UNESCO Institute for Statistics. This is a commitment that goes back in 2015 when 
uh, all countries signed up in the Framework for Action uh, for Education 2030 to set intermediate benchmarks. And the way we have been working with UIS uh, over the last three, four years is to, first of all, agree on the indicators that are of significance for all countries and have the largest potential to be monitored. And in, um, in this case, uh, the minimum learning proficiency is one of the seven indicators that have been approved. And then we have been inviting countries to set targets, national targets for 2025 and 2030, uh, not necessarily set them anew, uh, share them uh, from their own national plans. And since this year, we have started reporting on the progress countries are making. Of course, me measuring progress on foundational learning is very complicated because uh, the data points are limited and discrete, um, and we don't have anything uh, most recently. Um, but in the first place, what has been a major challenge is that countries have not really known very well where they stand and what is the level they can achieve. I think uh, the progress rate in particular is very important. It is really uh, a key element that has been missing. We know more or less how fast countries grow in terms of their enrollment and their completion rates, um, but we don't have enough information how countries how fast countries can improve their learning achievement. And this is a key element, I think, that is missing in the debate. And by drawing attention and by comparing countries' ambition when they set these targets and by rooting them in real data, that's, I think, a major way forward for uh, really seeing any uh, opportunity for dialogue and what solutions work and uh, how realistic uh, we need to be about how fast we can improve uh, because even the fastest countries that have improved have uh, improved with certain uh, in certain range so we cannot expect uh, miracles to happen but i think it's better to know what is possible uh, before setting targets that can mobilize a whole society yeah absolutely I wanted to just bring in one sentence from the spotlight that that speaks directly to this kind of lack of information on foundational learning and the need for that to really drive, um, you know, like you're saying, drive uh, political expectations to drive realistic targeting and all that kind of thing. So the spotlight states uh, there's no information on learning levels of two thirds of African children currently. Right. And and. Um, you know, uh, to address that, uh, you, you were talking about this SDG4 benchmarking process that both the GEM report and, and UNESCO um, more broadly are leading. And um, well, I guess I, just a follow-up question maybe is, is um, you know, how, can you tell us a little more, how is that process going? Are many countries setting foundational learning goals um, through that benchmarking process and starting to commit to measuring them? Yes, one in two uh, African countries have set targets for 2025 and 2030 on learning. Um, and we, in the SDG4 scorecard that we published on, in January, we also saw a very interesting graph which shows how um, poorer and richer countries differ in terms of their goal setting. And we find that poorer countries tend to be a little bit more over-ambitious and richer countries tend to be under-ambitious compared to what we know is potentially feasible. But the benchmarking process has several objectives. One of them is to draw attention to data gaps. And in that sense, um, it's not only the responsibility of the governments themselves, because uh, measuring learning is a very 
costly exercise. Many people often question uh, how much should we be investing in that, given, I mean, if you think of the budget of many African countries and the, the budget of a learning assessment, many people would naturally question how much money can one uh, dedicate to that. Uh, but it is a, a force for uh, reflection and it is really very important. Of course, you would not expect to hear anything different from the director of the Global Education Monitoring Report. But we also draw attention to the responsibilities of uh, external partners, uh, donors, who have not been particularly strategic over time in directing resources so that countries participate in robust assessments uh, and, in fact, help build institutions in the countries so that this can be sustainable. In fact, and we have one of the case studies is focusing on Sierra Leone, for instance, uh, where we saw that there has been uh, an incredible amount of resources spent over the last eight to 10 years. And yet the country is still not reporting on the global indicator because essentially what funders tend to do is that they focus on their own short term projects, um, a little bit self-interested, and they have not really paid attention to efforts to uh, have a global proficiency framework, be able to report on that. And of course, global comparability is not the most important thing, but it helps anchor uh, questions of quality. It helps build processes and it helps bring a certain degree of continuity without which, of course, target setting becomes uh, less meaningful. Great. I wanted to... Um, uh make sure we also spend some time talking about the other uh, recommendations in the spotlight. Um, so I wanted to move on to uh, two of the recommendations at the system level, uh, which are about supporting teachers, uh, both in particular through developing teacher guides, uh, and then also through reorienting um, school administrators and district staff into um, focusing on instructional leadership. And again, I just wanted to say this exactly agrees with, I think, what a lot of RISE uh, research has found and certainly is one of the five uh, actions that uh, was present in RISE's recent paper and, and campaign on improving um, progress in learning. Um, and I think there's this broader increasing uh, movement across the sector uh, that you can't just ask current teachers who often don't have good training and preparation and often don't have high content knowledge uh, to just get better and hold them accountable for getting better unless you also offer them lots of support and often very uh, tightly structured support. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what the spotlight finds uh, about the need for supporting teachers? Teacher support is really in uh, the heart of the changes that uh, education systems need to prioritize if we are to see uh, improvements in foundational learning anytime soon. And I, I agree with you how you describe this in a broader sense, not just uh, thinking of the teacher, but also of the institutions that will support those teachers. And uh, district education officers are one of the uh, seven factors we also had in our analytical framework. And we had the case study from Kenya where uh, I think we uh, were also impressed, by the way, to some uh, the program uh, that uh, USAID supported uh, over several years, really heavily invested in uh, empowering this level of the administration to uh, really help schools. And I think that's um, definitely an example that deserves more attention. But um, 
the first cycle of uh, the spotlight, which essentially was launched in uh, October when uh, we had the publication of the Continental Report and the, uh, the five country reports, uh, is uh, focused on all seven factors of the analytical framework. So it was quite broad as we tried to introduce the approach. Uh, moving into the second uh, cycle, uh, which uh, we hope uh, will be concluded by uh, in a year from now, um, we are reviewing a little bit uh, the focus to maybe sharpen it and look more closely in uh, some areas. And that's also related uh, to the LEARN network, uh, which is um, uh, focusing on three clusters uh, of the African Union's continental education strategy. Uh, it's on curriculum, on teacher development, and on planning and assessment. So uh, given the uh, work on the teacher development cluster, we will focus specifically on uh, that question of teacher support. And teacher guides, uh, we believe, is a neglected aspect. Uh, it's an area where countries could learn perhaps a bit more from each other. Um, you know, what, uh, um, what is the current arrangement? What are the types of documents that are there when they were last updated and, and um, were they aligned with uh, what teachers are expected to teach? Are they in a format? that helps them plan their lessons, or are they actually uh, available, printed, and reaching teachers, which is often a major question. So there's more that we'll be able to say uh, at the end of uh, this cycle once we uh, compare the experiences of uh, the six countries that are participating. Great. Well, we'll look forward to further findings around uh, yeah, how best to support teachers and uh, um, the, the other country experiences that are forthcoming in the next round of the spotlight. Um, one last question I wanted to ask, uh, maybe it's a bigger picture question about the spotlight six big top line recommendations, and that's whether there is an order that you think countries and governments might pursue those recommendations. Um, so the motivation behind this question is, you know, RISE is a systems program, right? And we often argue that you can't make much progress improving the student level stuff without first addressing the systems level stuff. Um, and, you know, to make this very concrete, there was this interesting point that I noticed while reading the spotlight um, about textbooks that surprised me a bit. And the spotlight, uh, you know, is very strong on providing a textbook to every child, um, which you know, is in tension, I think, a little bit with some studies that RISE often uh, cites that found that, you know, just providing textbooks often doesn't improve learning because those textbooks were not synced up with other parts of the system. You know, they were maybe at too high of a level for uh, the students that um, were trying to use them or teachers might not be trained how to use those textbooks. So I wanted to ask, um, at that big picture level, how do you think about, you know, inputs and student level stuff first versus getting the systems stuff right first? Um, and is there an order to those? I think the distinction between student and system factors is uh, more a matter of presentation, uh, because inevitably, if you want to introduce uh, school meals, home language and textbooks, you also need to organize those at the system level. So it's not necessarily um, a very clear conceptual distinction, but I think it helps to focus the idea that you need to reach every learner uh, with these particular inputs. Uh, the question 
why we put so much priority uh, on textbooks. I think it was, in, as you say, essentially provoked by the literature that RISE has used. Um, yes, in, in fact, there's not that much literature if we want to really be um, frank. Uh, but the fact that an enthusiastic young researcher arrives in an African country and suddenly discovers that textbooks are not being used, uh, but uh, they're uh, locked uh, in the storeroom because the head teacher is concerned that next year they might not be available, is something that nobody should have been surprised about because if you have worked in uh, an African country, you know that this is a reality. Uh, but to make that the main finding and ignore the fact that still three students on average have to share a textbook in primary education in Africa in 2020. The fact that uh, these rates are actually, these ratios are even worse in early grades. And to not make that the most important fact that needs urgent attention, we think is a mistake. So that's why we uh, um, uh, insisted so much, uh, because sometimes this pressure of using evidence that is robust, rigorous, etc., can mislead. I think it's an important message. There are uh, other more important facts. And so uh, the fact that students do not have a textbook is a major shock uh, that we need to realize that this problem that needs to overcome because learners cannot learn without textbooks. And textbooks, unfortunately, however much we want to believe otherwise, are not in students' hands. So um, that does not mean that textbooks do not need to be improved, aligned. And we feature, of course, the example of Benin in the reports where um, there have been efforts to improve the design, uh, make it more compatible with modern understandings of how children learn, also make them cheap and affordable, uh, which is a very important uh, dimension. But to say that textbooks are a bad buy, I think, to me, seems sometimes like a shift of responsibility. Uh, the fact that after decades of development work, we still uh, have not been able to set up uh, textbook production and distribution systems that ensure every child has a book uh, to be able to learn. Great. No, thanks for explaining that. And uh, yeah, it's a really interesting uh, debate and uh, intervention, I think, that, that the Spotlight series is making. That brings us to the question we always end the RISE podcast with. What is one thing you wish other people knew about education systems? I mean, first of all, let me praise uh, the RISE program for bringing this political economy aspect to education in such a forceful way, which I think is an essential read for anyone um, who is interested and cares about uh, education reform and the improvement of uh, children's learning levels. Um, the fact that we may not be able to use it is the nature of um, uh, the project that we're engaged in and the fact that we, as I mentioned, um, work with governments. But knowing the backgrounds and the different interests of organizations is, of course, uh, absolutely necessary so that we do not make naive uh, recommendations. But at the same time, and if uh, that could be a message, we also know that we need to be very careful uh, when it comes to system engineering and uh, making interventions from the top. Um, there has been a lot of debate about uh, the opportunities, but also the limits and the constraints. So education systems are very complex um, and we should not be perhaps uh, carried away 
uh, about how much we can influence from uh, from the top. Uh, we need to be humble and try to recognize um, our limitations in making change and acting in those areas, um, incremental areas, um, where we can avoid at least the worst outcomes from happening. Manos, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.